0: Welcome to Discover Healthier. Everything you need to know about health brought to you by Discovery Health. I'm Azania Musaka. You can join the conversation as we explore some of the most pressing matters in the healthcare environment today. Our wide variety of topics and specialist guests will empower you to care for your health now and in the future. I'm now joined by two women who are passionate about making sure that the rights of those who experience gender-based violence are upheld. It's a pleasure to talk to Executive Director at Lawyers Against Abuse, Lindsay Henson. She holds a law degree from Harvard Law School and a Bachelor of Science from the University of California. Lindsay has worked with NGOs in India, Bangladesh, and the Philippines addressing gender-based violence and other human rights issues, and she has experience working with victims of domestic violence and sexual violence in both the criminal and civil legal systems in the United States. Lawyers Against Abuse is based in Dipslut in Johannesburg. And... We're chatting to Lana Snorman. Lana has 30 years experience in the trauma field. She has for many years trained counselors at the South African Depression and Anxiety Group on trauma and coping mechanisms. She also spent 10 years as a volunteer trauma counselor with the South African Police Service, training new counselors, setting up victim and counselor support programs, as well as domestic violence and rape support groups. Lana provides training and education to corporate clients on trauma and coping mechanisms. And she also has experience in degenerative brain diseases or dementia and works with clients, family members and caregivers to support them through these conditions. A warm welcome. Uh, Let me kick off with Lindsay, what are some of the contributing factors to gender-based violence in our country and how has this pandemic in fact fueled these factors?
1: I would say one of the big ones is really just the power imbalances that we see existing within patriarchal system. You see systems that both kind of socially and politically where men hold the majority of power, they're treated superior to women, and these lead to perceived norms around sexual entitlement as well. So I'd say that's a big contributing factor, as well as really just levels of substance abuse and just the intergenerational nature of trauma and violence. So we know that research tells us that children who witness violence in the home are Either more likely to become perpetrators of violence or victims of violence as adults. I mean, there are other reasons, but I think that these kind of really help us start to get a sense for really how complex and multifaceted gender-based violence is as a problem. Yeah. And I mean, speaking to how I mean the impacts of COVID, we've all seen the reports, you know, both in South Africa and abroad of increased rates of violence in connection with lockdowns and in connection with some of the COVID nineteen regulations. And I think some of the reasons for That is really just physical proximity. I mean, people were literally trapped in their homes with their abusers not being able to leave for long periods of time, as well as you have those increased stressors. So financial pressures, food insecurity, other things that are going to lead really to this just kind of almost like a a time bomb. I mean, like a hot box of this pressure that happens. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that those are some of the things that have really led to some of the increases in domestic violence that we've seen over the last few months.
0: And Lana, what are your thoughts on the contributing factors? As someone who has such extensive knowledge of trauma, we are country ridden with trauma, historical and present. And COVID-19 in itself has also
2: brought about a lot of trauma. I'm in full agreement with Lindsay, her points taken on the patriarchal society, all these various influences. The various crutches such as drugs and alcohol, the peer pressure, the financial demands and economic stressors are just at a record high. And now more than ever, Zania, the sense of loss, loss of self-esteem, loss of jobs, loss of choice and loss of freedom of movement is leading to tremendous amount of frustration and anger. Mm. That gives us a sense of what contributes
0: to the levels that we see the levels of violence. But when we also deal or talk about those that the violence is directed to, some people don't understand why it's important to refer to them as survivors and not as victims. So Lana, what is the thinking behind that? And what is the power of this language in this fight against gender based violence?
2: That's very important. We want to empower these victims as much as possible. And by labeling them victims, putting them in a box of a lack of coping, we need to empower them rather as survivors. It has connotations more empowering than it's hope for them to move forward. And Lindsay, with the work that you do as well, do
0: you see this disempowerment and empowering of victims when they refer to as survivors, when they step into the idea of surviving this trauma?
2: Yeah, in the work that
1: we do, I mean, our clients we're working with almost immediately after violence has occurred in many instances. And so the language that we do use is to refer to our clients is as victims, because at the point that we engage with them, they are very disempowered. And for us, it's really it's up to the individual themselves that we're certainly trying to move our clients from a place of identifying themselves as victims to identifying themselves as survivors. And that's certainly the process that we accompany them through. But for us, the the point at which we engage with our clients they've survived in the sense that they're still they've physically survived an attack Mm. but they're not necessarily survivors in that they've now been able to overcome necessarily they are at that point Mm. of overcoming
0: so it's on a continuum you're in a journey on a process towards this empowerment of being a survivor
1: exactly
0: so lana for those that are listening to this and those who may not have any insight into gender-based violence How do you explain this crime and its
2: impact on a victim? Well, you might very well find that this is not normal behavior. Insofar as you need to first recognize that increased aggression, forced social isolation, the dependency on various drugs, alcohol, loss of a job, poor self-esteem and control mechanisms being manifested exacerbates the anger and will ultimately lead to an outburst of aggression on said person. And most often, it's in close proximity. So living under the same roof, somebody very familiar will be the abuser. And can we also explore
0: the impact on a victim?
2: The impact on the victim is tremendous because very, very often they are beaten down mentally before the physical abuse starts. it could start off as... Mental sarcasm, it can start off as negation, it can start off as bullying, until such time that this poor person is feeling so beaten down emotionally, they are then far more vulnerable to the physical mm. abuse. And that's how it actually starts to manifest. Mm. They do not feel worthy, and they start believing what the abuser is accusing them of.
0: And Lindsay, your views on this in terms of explaining what this crime is all about, because it is a crime and there are statutes that tell us what the punishment should be. But you also get to see, we talked about a continuum, how victims are affected and impacted by it.
1: Sure. So we define or explain gender based violence as a term or as a concept as as violence that's perpetrated against you because of a vulnerability associated with your gender. And so this would include all forms of sexual violence, domestic violence, and child abuse. And we know that while anyone can be a victim of this kind of violence, the type of violence really disproportionately affects women and girls, both in South Africa and around the world. And so if we think about the kinds of impacts that this violence has, you know, notwithstanding the more obvious physical impact that physical or sexual violence would have on a person. We know that, as Lana has mentioned, that gender-based violence often results in significant mental health distress for its victims. Things like clinical depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, there are other psychological consequences like fear, helplessness, humiliation, feeling guilty or shameful because of what's happened to you, suicidal thoughts or attempts And unfortunately, if these aren't treated, then these after effects really compound and can really cause this trauma and the after effects of the trauma to be debilitating for an individual unless they get the necessary help.
0: And I guess it also speaks to the challenges that victims of GBV face. There are many of these challenges from finding the courage and the support that is needed to report this experience to, say, engaging with the police that in itself re-traumatizes and sometimes these matters being dismissed outright, so you're denied justice. And even more when it comes to testifying in court. Can we chat about these issues, about the seeking of justice and sometimes an often how this adds and compounds the challenges that a victim is faced with. Lindsay, I'll start with you on that.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, unfortunately, it's pretty common knowledge that victims will experience what we call secondary victimization in the pursuit of justice. Mm. As you mentioned, from being even just turned away by the police, or maybe even before they get to the police, the first person that they tell doesn't believe them or tells them, you know, keep quiet. Maybe the perpetrator is also the breadwinner. And so when violence is or abuse is disclosed, then they're just told to keep quiet to not cause problems. And then if they go to the police then maybe the police don't assist or turn them away. Or, you know, they experience victim blaming attitudes or or mentalities by the police or even in their own communities. So questions like, well, what were you wearing? Why were you out at night? Those sorts of things. Or even the police, you know, maybe even encouraging them to drop the case or negotiate for damages. You're not going to win in any case. All the way to when testifying in court, you know, victims often, our clients often find this extremely re-traumatizing. Just even being, you know, having to face now physically face your perpetrator for some for the first time since the attack to the nature of questions that get asked on cross-examination in terms of the way that the justice system is meant to work. In, in trial, it's meant to really test the credibility of witnesses, but oftentimes the way and the nature that these questions are posed to a victim is is really re-traumatizing. And again, for a lot of people it's the first time that they've even had to retell their stories, possibly since the time that they reported it in the first instance to the police. And many of them are doing it maybe without having any sort of therapy or counseling in the years that have passed since then. So I mean, these are just some of the challenges that victims experience. And then not only just ongoing delays, I mean, the length of time that it takes actually for a case to reach trial For the very few small percentage of cases that actually reach trial, the amount of time is very discouraging to victims and oftentimes victims will withdraw because they don't actually have the faith in the justice system that they're going to ever see their day in court or that the justice system will work for them.
0: Alana, as someone who deeply understands trauma, this picture that Lindsay has just outlined, what does this do to someone who's already experienced trauma?
2: Well, they are so emotionally beaten down. Once it gets to a stage of physical abuse, as I say, there's that feeling of complete worthlessness. Will anybody believe me? Where do I go from here? The threat of suicide is very, very high amongst Mm -hmm. these poor, and I do use the word victim at this point, because I do agree with Lindsay's point that at the moment, and at the height of the trauma, they are definitely victims, and the survivor mode comes in at a later stage, helping them to develop further. So at this point in time, they are captive. They are terrified. They are beaten down. They are emotionally and physically abused. If they find solace in perhaps a trusted friend Mm. and perhaps a religious leader, a teacher, a steady counsellor, a social worker, a lawyer, a police officer, perhaps the very few that are accessible and are not going to re-victimize, re-traumatize them. We've got to try and send out an alert to a trusted person who can help carry them through this journey.
0: Yeah, so otherwise, that beating down that you refer to just goes deeper and deeper. Quite right. A popular question, ladies, is about signs. This is a question that I've encountered where people say Are there any signs that women and also male victims, you know, are there any signs that you might look out for? That you can connect with or just try and recognize before entering into a relationship with the person who is capable of or who will
1: perpetrate GBV in the
0: future? Is there such a thing? What are those signs?
1: So for me, I mean, some of the things that we advise when we do workshops and consulting and things like that is jealous behavior is often a precursor to violence. Some of the the tactics will be used will be around isolation. So they'll try and keep you from friends, keep you from your family. And I mean, this isn't always done in really obvious ways, but in more subtle ways. And as Lana indicated previously, that this violence just, it escalates. It's not you're in a perfect relationship and then the next day you're being choked. It's often it'll be then, verbal abuse, kind of that bullying behavior. And then even when it becomes physical, then it'll be a slap or a push or, you know, and then the violence just continues to escalate from there. So I think that those are some of the top warning signs that I would identify in a relationship. If you're starting to see that kind of behavior in a relationship, Mm. then I would definitely say it'd be important to get out.
0: And Lana, you know, I keep referring to your wealth of experience in trauma counseling. You've had over 30 years of doing this work, how much of your work has dealt with GBV specifically?
2: Oh, gosh, Danya, I
0: would say 30%. Yeah, it's very prevalent in our society. And what about now during COVID-19?
2: wow, I have never ever seen so much abuse, domestic violence. I've never seen it as high ever in my entire professional career. It's absolutely beyond anything I've experienced. Yes. And it's obviously been exacerbated either by the sale of alcohol or the lack of cigarettes or the sudden withdrawal of alcohol and the lack of cigarettes and or drugs, et cetera, et cetera. So the coping mechanisms and choices have been withdrawn from people's lives. Mm-hmm. There's no control. There's no choice. And this has resulted in tremendous outbreaks of frustration, anger, and bursts of rage.
0: And what are the possible ways of seeking help if you are in a GBV
2: situation? Right. So if you have the safety network of friends and family, I would seriously suggest you start making very subtle plans to move on out in secrecy. You make a backup plan. It's Even in these very difficult times, if you can save a little bit of money every single month to put an emergency fund away so that you can support yourself or your children, you start picking up and moving clothes and essential items to a safe house, a safe space, under very tight controls where your identity will remain secret and your moves will remain private. That is the immediacy of trying to extricate yourself from this urgent situation.
0: So be quite systematic, start to prepare, because we often think that you should just remove yourself, you know, cut yourself out of that situation. But the advice clearly is that in order for that to be successful, you need to plan for it. Do we see that when there is a lack of planning, that this is a vicious
2: cycle that continues? Yes, because you do tend to find that if they don't take care of their own safety yeah. their own space, the personal safety, that of themselves and their children. Something falls through insofar as contact numbers are left where the perpetrator can access that. They know the family details. So I cannot stress enough how important privacy is concerned and trust. Trust is absolutely paramount in this with so whom you that person is turning to, a friend, a teacher, or whosoever they feel they might be able to hide out until which time they have the strength to take it further, albeit with a social worker or a policeman or an influencer.
0: And what about those who may be friends or family to someone who's experiencing gender-based violence? What is the crucial first steps towards the right direction in providing assistance and support?
2: I would definitely say so, yes. It's a more friendly environment where you're not dealing with a stranger who you don't know how they respond. Will they believe you? Will they not? I would definitely go the safe route of turning to those you have a close bond relationship with and with whom you do feel safe enough to reveal your trauma.
0: And if someone does reveal their trauma to me, say as a sister, as a relative or as a friend, how should I hold that space for them? What is my role? What is the best way to support them?
2: The best way to support them is to stress confidentiality yeah. and that you will hold them in a safe space as long as required, and you will try and support them emotionally, physically as much as you can. If it's including them into bringing them into your family home, if it means providing for them temporarily, safe space, financially, whatever it might be, mm. it's to try and give them that encouragement and that hope that there is a procedure forward, there is a way going forward with yes. trust.
0: A lot of people are referred to you via Sadeg, the South African Depression and Anxiety Group. So is that the best way to be able to access you? Well, you can
2: contact me on Skype. My handle is lana.snoiman, L-A-N-A dot S-N-O-Y-M-A-N, or otherwise my email address is lansnoy at hotmail.com. Fantastic.
0: Just stay with us, Lana. just want to wrap some of these details as well that are involved in the journey of moving from being a victim to being a survivor with Lindsay. So, Lindsay, does the legal side of the process, when does that kick in exactly? And when does the legal process have a role to play in turning the tide on GBV?
1: I think that the legal process has an incredibly critical role to play. I think that holding perpetrators accountable for their actions is actually critically important because when perpetrators are held accountable, not only are they themselves prevented from continuing to perpetrate violence either towards that victim or other victims, but it then sends a much broader message that these crimes actually aren't going to be tolerated, which then can act as a deterrent for other would-be perpetrators. Right. So I would say that you can't say it enough. like It can't be overstated that the just the importance of having a strong, responsive and effective criminal justice system response is in the fight against gender-based violence.
0: Now, the work that you do with Lawyers Against Abuse, you're based in DeepSloot, but you also support women across South Africa. Tell me more about your efforts.
1: Sure. So our center in Sloot, we run a walk-in center there where we then we have a multidisciplinary team. So we have lawyers, therapists. community workers who are then providing comprehensive services to our clients. So that's both legal services, assisting with protection orders, providing then ongoing comprehensive support in criminal cases, as well as then providing individual and group therapy and counseling. But then, you know, unfortunately, because of our own limited capacity, we're only able to then provide our full scope of services to residents of the Dipsville community. And so what we then offer, just because there is very limited direct legal services available and accessible for victims of violence. And so what we do offer is we provide then just legal counsel or, or basically legal advice to people who contact us from all over the country. And that's via email, via phone, via our websites, via our Facebook. People contact us in a number of ways, just asking questions around, you know, what are their rights? This is what's happened. What actions can they take? You know, how do you get a protection order? Or, you know, the if there's misconduct in a criminal case, like what actions can they take? Those sorts of things. So again, that, that advice is just it's offered to anyone. And it's offered
0: for free. I want to stay with that for a moment because I want us to talk about the legal remedies that are available to victims of GBV. And maybe if we could just go through them. You've mentioned protection order, for instance. So what are the protections and rights available to victims of gender based violence?
1: Sure. So a protection order is a remedy on that's then on the civil side, and it's under the Domestic Violence Act. And that's where if there's a pattern of domestic violence or even a single act of domestic violence, the act defines domestic violence quite broadly. So it's not just physical abuse, but it's physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, economic abuse. It's quite a broad definition. Then the individual can approach the court and apply for a protection order. And then if they go through the process, first they would get in a temporary or an interim protection order, which would then need to be Served on the individual, and then they go back for final hearing where they can get a final order issued. But if that final order is issued, then depending on the circumstances, the terms of the order would then be customized to your circumstances. You know, all orders, it's a standard term to say, you know, this individual cannot commit another act of domestic violence against you. But it can also include terms like they can't contact you at all, or they can't come to your home, or they can't come to where you work, those sorts of things. And if then the individual, the respondent, the perpetrator of violence, violates any of those terms, then the victim can then open a criminal case, and then it becomes a criminal offense now, which is called a contravention of a protection order, it basically means violating a protection order. And one of the great things about protection orders is they actually never expire. So you could get one in place now, and then if it's violated in five years' time, that protection order is still valid. You can still go to the police. Once it, when it's issued, you're given a warrant of arrest. You can still go to the police and say that this protection order has been violated, and then it becomes a criminal offense. That's on the civil side. And one of the great things is that these domestic violence courts are really designed in a way that they're meant to be accessible to victims. So they're meant to be very victim friendly. And so you actually don't need your own representation. So you don't need to get a lawyer. You can go in and represent yourself. They're quite informal in that the magistrate then could ask you questions, could ask the responding questions as well. So I think that that's one of people's big concerns is I can't afford a lawyer, therefore they're not gonna explore any form of a legal remedy. But this is one that's meant to be again, very user friendly. You can download the forms online, fill them out in advance, or if you don't have access to the internet, you can just go to your closest magistrate's court Say you want a protection order, and then the clerks will advise you in terms of how to complete the forms.
0: And what about protections and rights that are available to victims when they are navigating the criminal justice system?
1: Sure. So within the criminal justice system, you'd have typically have assaults or assault, GBH, if the assault is more serious, or obviously rape or sexual assault. There's a wide range of other sexual offenses that are defined. But again, South Africa's legislation is very expensive. It's very victim-centric, and it does provide a lot of rights for victims of violence. So, for example, victims of sexual violence in particular, they can report their crime at any police station So with other kinds of crimes, you have to actually report to the police station where the crime happened or where you live. But with sexual violence crimes, you can actually report at any police station and you can report at any time. So it doesn't have to be reported immediately after the incident took place or a week later or two weeks later. You can actually report sexual violence crimes, rapes and other forms of sexual violence at any point. Hmm. Although it is better to report you know, sooner rather than later, just for the collection of evidence. And then a couple of other rights that's important for people to be aware of is you also, in sexual violence cases, you have the right to give your statement in a private room. And you also have a right to give your statement to a female police officer if you'd prefer that. Mm -hmm. So you would just need to express that when you are reporting that crime. To have privacy, to obviously to uphold somebody's dignity and their privacy, to be able to share those details in a private space, I think is really important.
0: Yes, but we know that what is within the law is not necessarily what happens in practice. So what recourse do victims have if they go to the police and they're turned away? We spoke to the founder of the Tears Foundation and she formed that organization precisely because when she was a victim of gender-based violence, she turned to the police and she simply did not receive the help that she required. And so that led her to form the organization. And so what recourse do we have if this is our experience with the police.
1: I mean, the best thing, and this is what we advise people who contact us, the best thing is if you encounter a challenge, so if you go to the police station and you're not assisted, either you're turned away or they're not helpful, then you have a right to speak to you know, what is called the branch commander. So the VISPOL, which would be the officers that you would engage with, the visible policing, those are the officers that you would make that initial report to. So you can demand to speak to the VISPOL branch commander, or if they're not available or you can't have access to them, to speak to the station commander directly and to lay a complaint, basically for the service or the lack thereof that you've received. Yeah. And similarly, if you've already opened a case and maybe the investigating officer that's been assigned to your case, you haven't heard from them or there's been instances of misconduct or poor behavior, if any sort of really any sort of concern that you may have. Similarly, you can ask to speak to the detective branch commander or even the station commander again. So that's what I say. And if they're not helpful, you carry on kind of going up the ladder, up the chain of command. And I know it's easier said than done, especially if you're feeling quite disempowered to be yeah. able to like go and be this assertive. But those are your rights and you do have the right to do that.
0: Yes, I just keep thinking of what Lina had said about, you know, how victims are often beaten down, that it's a process. And there's often very little reserve left, not only to seek justice, but to keep going up this ladder as you've described
1: a lot of the work that we do at our organization is, you know, walking again, journeying with the clients and journeying with them throughout this process. And so intervening on their behalf when it comes mm-hmm. to engaging them with state actors. And unfortunately, we wish that our organization was just everywhere because we do get contacted. And it's hard for us as well when they're saying, well, the police officer handling my case has done one, two, three, or isn't doing one, two, three, you know, but they maybe don't feel confident enough or comfortable enough to go and demand to speak to the station commander. You know, we have, of course, wish that we could go and and help them. But unfortunately, we are just in deep at the moment.
0: And I guess there also other support channels within this network, other organizations, Hotliner and so on. Do you recommend victims to know about these
1: and also, of course, to utilize them in this journey? Definitely. I mean, there are a few national ones, which I think can be helpful for two reasons. One, they can help try and connect you to other resources that exist in your communities. So, I mean, I can't provide much practical assistance to somebody who's in the Western Cape, but perhaps I can help refer them or they could get the contact details for other organizations that are based in their communities. So a few of the big ones are the National DSD Hotline. So that's been advertised, but the number is 0800-428-428. And then there are also a couple of other like twenty four hour hotlines or counseling lines once run by childline, and that's for children victims of child abuse, and so that's zero eight zero zero five 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 five. And also, Lifeline is an organization that runs a 24 hour counseling emergency hotline. And their number is 0861 322 322. And I'm sure Mara would have spoken about the TEARS hotline as well. And then you could contact them and they then help connect you to other services in your community as well.
0: You both have been so insightful. And as we wrap, I just want to get some final comments from you. Lana, what is your central message to women out there, to victims out there, as well as to perpetrators of gender-based violence?
2: Well, to the victim, I would say, please believe, believe that there is hope for you. There is so much that we would like to do to assist. If you just listen to what Lindy said, she can open so many avenues to assist during the legal route. We as counselors can definitely assist you to take you on the journey to hand you to and through the legal system, but to believe that you are worthy of a good life. You are worthy of a greater self-esteem. Believe in yourself that this abuse is not normal, Mm. that the life we are living at the moment in very close proximity to our abusers is absolutely abhorrent and it's not normal and it shouldn't be normal. So there is light. Please reach out. Please believe in yourself that there is a better chance for a better life if you trust yourself, trust your gut instincts, and reach out for assistance. To abusers, understand your need for control and dominance. We will get you in some manner or form, and Lindsay will tell you, they cannot have the final say or the final hand. This need to control, dominate, abuse has got to stop. And it comes with education. It comes with lots of training. And if the men are feeling out of control, there are men support groups. There are male support groups that they can turn to for reaching out and for support to try and break down the aggression and their feelings of frustration, their loss of self-esteem, et etc. et cetera. So it's helpful them as well. Lindsay, a final word from you. I would echo a lot of what Lana
1: has said. I would say to women that you are not alone, that what is happening to you or what has happened to you is not your fault, that it is wrong and that there are individuals and organizations that are ready and willing to help. So to to speak out and to keep speaking out until you find the help that you need and also to perpetrators to understand what you're doing is wrong and is having lifelong consequences for the women and children that you're hurting. So to stop and
2: to get the help that you need to do so.
0: Yes. Incidentally, we spoke to Sashali Olivier, Miss South Africa 2019, and she has a whole campaign as well around hashtag It's Not Your Fault. Just to echo your words, Lindsay, thank you so much to both of you. I think this has been an incredibly important conversation to be had. Thank you, Lindsay. And thank you, Lana.
1: Thank you very much, Azania. Thank you, Azania.
0: If you've enjoyed this podcast, then be sure to look out for all the other episodes in the Discover Healthier podcast series. And if you want to better understand how Discovery is supporting all South Africans through the COVID-19 pandemic, be sure to tune into episode 14 to 16 and hear about the World Health Organization Global Outbreak Benefit, isolation hotels for COVID-19, free online doctor consultations, and crucial support available to the businesses out there. Gender-based violence concerns all of us. We should all care about it and all lend our voices to its eradication in our society. We need to speak up where there's injustice and support survivors who come forward. Podcasts like these really matter. They matter because they shed light on a crime that leaves many people without a voice. And our experts have made that perfectly clear. I believe that if each and every one of us can better understand why gender-based violence happens, then we can work towards supporting the survivors and also addressing the root causes of this sort of crime in our society. We all have a part to play. Thank you for listening to this episode of Discover Healthier brought to you by Discovery Health. Join the conversation on social media with the hashtag Discover Healthier and tag at Discovery underscore SA. You can subscribe to our podcast channel, Discovery South Africa, on your favorite podcast
2: app or visit discovery.co.za to listen to our shows.